before we start class this morning, I'd like to welcome our latest newlywed couple, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Michael Land. If you guys would stand. Yeah. Who, as you all know, were just hitched last uh, Saturday night. And they're just back from their honeymoon. Welcome back, guys. And by the way, for everybody who doesn't know, Michael is my stepson. <laughs> Stephanie is Dean Scott's daughter. Where's Zoe? Here's Zoe coming in. All righty. Just so you all know who they are. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to come together and study your word this, this week. We pray that uh, we will have your wisdom and insight and discernment and that your angels will join us as we rejoice in you today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So lesson number three, hope this week in our quarterly, uh, The Christian Life, we're doing lesson number three, the lesson entitled Hope. Somebody read for us the, the memory text, please. Always be prepared to give the answer to everyone who asks you, everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. What hope do you have? Jesus coming. A better life, a better place to live, for happiness, for peace, for joy. Hope for happiness, peace, joy. Everlasting happiness, not have any more of the sin in the world. And from where does that hope arise? Resurrection of Jesus. That hope comes from knowing that we have a God who who loves us and who is looking out and has been intervening for our our health and well-being and our best interests this time began. So hope comes from knowing God? Yes. Now, is there a difference between knowing God and Jesus, whom he has sent? Uh, John 17, 3, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, and now sent. So is there a difference in knowing them and knowing about them? How many have hope because they know about Jesus? Well, knowing about them is what brought me to know him. His creation. Does your hope change when you move from knowing about to knowing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you ever heard the saying, where there is life, there is hope? Have you heard that? It's actually been shown to be the opposite. That's that's actually not true. It's not where there's life, there's hope. It's where there's hope, there's life. And actually, the psychology department at Duke University did a study in the 80s. You probably heard about this study in which they took uh, rats, lab rats, and, and they took one and, and put it in this uh, tub of water with no possible hope of escape. It was just in a tub of water with no outs at all. And the, uh, the rat gave up swimming and drowned in about four to five minutes. But they put another rat in a tub of water with a, with a, a very small window of opportunity for it. It was very, very difficult, but the, but the rat could see hope of escape. But it was very hard to, to do it. That ram, rat swam for 37 hours before it drowned. Now, it sounds kind of cruel to tell that story, doesn't it? But, but the point of the story is where there was hope. And I can tell you as a psychiatrist uh, who deals with people who become suicidal, people become suicidal when they lose hope. 
And suicide is almost always, I won't say always, but almost always the result of a person experiencing some type of pain, whether it's physical pain, relational pain, psychological pain, some type of pain for which they, they lose hope of relief. The pain will never go away. I will be in this pain and suffering forever. And there's no hope of relief. That's when people become suicidal. And so one of the first things we do, if you ever have the opportunity to, uh, where someone in your family is talking suicidal, the first thing you want to do is make interventions that restore hope. And I can tell you in my practice, the people who I've dealt with that are suicidal, um, 100% of them get well. 100% improve. Now, there are conditions I treat which don't get well, but those patients aren't suicidal. For instance, Alzheimer's dementia. We can do things to forestall and slow the progression, but it slowly progresses, and, and, and I can't turn that around with the science we have currently. But those people aren't never suicidal. But the people with the suicidal illnesses like depression and bipolar disorder and panic disorder and those types of things, those things are always treatable, always treatable. And all my patients improve. And so when, when I can tell them that and tell them, I know you feel bad now, but if you work, we're, this is going to go away. That significantly reduces the risk of suicide once they have hope again. Because most people do not want to die. You can ask even a question. If I had two buttons on the wall and you push the button on the left, you're instantly gone, wiped out, dead. You push the button on the right and, and your pain is gone and you're happy again. And you feel good and life is fun. Which button do you push? All of them push the button on the right. They actually don't want to die. They want to escape the pain and the suffering. And death is their last way out when they lose hope. So we have to restore hope. Somebody read the first two paragraphs for us, uh, beginning, the 20th century began. The 20th century began in a mood of great optimism. Since the beginning of the Enlightenment era, optimism has dominated the way of thinking in the Western world. As human beings, we could not only discover all truth using reason, but we also were capable of moral perfection. New inventions, new modes of travel, the dramatic increase of medical knowledge, the introduction of new machines, and the steady advancement of human morals would improve all lives. But after two world wars cost, the nuclear threat of the Cold War, and worldwide terrorism as an ever-present danger, coupled with the realization that humankind is in the process of destroying the environment it needs for human survival, little reason for optimism remains. However, there is hope, not in what we see or in what we can do, but in what promised us through Jesus, his son. Thoughts? Any thoughts, comments, questions? Okay, so the question that came to me is, what has God promised us through Jesus? When you think of what our hope is and what God has promised us through Jesus, what have you been promised through Jesus? The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Eternal life. Experiencing of eternal life now. Okay, the experience of eternal life now. What do y'all think about that? What does that mean? What would that entail? What would that look like? Restored character. Restored character. So transformation of the inner man. Regeneration. Renewal. So freedom from the domination of sinfulness. That we're no longer controlled by the carnal nature, we're controlled by the spiritual nature. Are we promised that? Yeah. Hmm. Well, a new heart and a right spirit, those promises? 
promise of assuaging the Father's wrath. I, I, I see some smiles, but don't a lot of hold to that promise. We've been promised our payment has been made, our debt has been paid. Is that the promise we were made? No, yeah, back here, somewhere. Yeah. It tells that Christ went about teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so, I mean, often that's not our gospel, or the gospel that we hear preached. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? What kingdom? God's kingdom, and the kingdom of God is the kingdom of? Love. Is it not the kingdom of love? Kingdom of truth? So the gospel of the kingdom would be the gospel of God's kingdom of love. What gospel, if we're not preaching that gospel, what gospel are we preaching? Alan, did you say something? Just fear. The fear. gospel of fear. Ooh, we're going to get to that. Uh, you, you notice, that is there, is there a difference between the gospel of love and the gospel of fear? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were? Afraid. Perfect love casts out all? Fear. You notice, there is a controversy going on in our hearts between love and fear. And, and further in the lesson, in just a little while, we're going to come to that. You guys let your mind process on that. You're going to come to things. False gospels incite fear. False gospels stir up fear. And, and, and hopefully we'll get to it because I'm going to tell you what, what that does to your brain, what that does to your body as we teach those false gospels and, and that process. But let's finish up on, on this portion of it first. Have we been promised forgiveness? I see some heads nodding. Um, and I guess it would depend on how we define that. Because the question is, have we been promised forgiveness through Jesus? In other words, when I ask this question, was forgiveness promised through Jesus, or because God forgives, Jesus was sent to minister that forgiveness and reconciliation to us? Is it because of Jesus, and through him we have forgiveness, or forgiveness was extended by God, and Jesus is the means which brings that to us? We were promised forgiveness before Christ came. Do we need more than do we as sinners need more than forgiveness? Yes. yes. We need healing. Ah, oh, we need healing and restoration. There's a metaphor in the Old Testament when when um, Moses was a leader there, his brother and sister Miriam and Aaron started to have a little disagreement about who should be in, in leadership. Remember? And you remember what? By the way, what that was over? Why they were a little disgruntled? Moses' wife. Moses' wife, because he married an Ethiopian. And they were racist, you know. <laughs> and God then struck Miriam with leprosy. Now, in the Old Testament theater, we call the Jewish economy, the Old Testament theater, what is leprosy symbolic of? Sin. And so when someone was leprous, where did they have to reside or live? Outside, Outside the camp. So what is the teaching of, in, the sim, in the symbol here teaching? Leprosy separates us, or sin separates us from? From God and his heavenly community, okay? So, she's outside the camp now. She can't come in because she's leprous. Now, imagine you're Miriam. You're outside the camp and you're leprous. And God says, it's okay, Miriam, I understand. I forgive you. Is that all she needs? No. no. Can she go back into the camp now? No. She's been forgiven. She can go back in the camp. No. Why can't she go back in the camp? She needs healing. You see, having God extend forgiveness to sinners does not get us into heaven. It doesn't reconcile us to God. 
because the problem was never an unforgiving God. The barrier in our relationship with God was never God's heart needing to be worked on to extend forgiveness. The barrier in our relationship, what obstructed us, was our condition, our hardness of heart, our fear and selfishness. We, in order to have reconciliation, not only do we need to know that God forgives us, but through that we need to open the heart and let him change us from his enemies into friends so that we enjoy being in his presence again. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So with that in mind, with this idea that, that through, it's, not, it's, it's not we need forgiveness through Jesus, but Jesus brings the truth that God's forgiving heart and, and then works to heal and restore us. With that in mind, if that's right, then what do you think about Matthew twenty six twenty eight, which says, Jesus speaking to his uh, disciples, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Wait a minute. Does that just shoot a hole in what I was saying? Oh, how do we process that? How do we understand that? And I read, at, read to you out of the NIV version, the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It would make it sound like, would this not make it sound like our hope is in Jesus' blood who achieved forgiveness for us through the shedding of his blood? Would that not make that sound like that? Let's read out of the King James Version. For this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Does that change the meaning at all? How does it change the meaning? What does forgiveness sound like? Pardon. Legal legal expiation of debt. What does remission sound like? When When you have cancer, you want the cancer to go into... Remission. Remission. So you want the cancerous cells to remit to the healthiest precancerous state. So we want our sinful hearts to remit, to turn back, to be regenerated, to be restored back into the God's original design. Without the shedding of blood, this is the blood of the covenant, without which sinfulness would not remit. We would stay sinful. Yes. I think if, if we only need forgiveness of sins, all we would have needed is justification and go quickly to glorification and be done with it. We don't need sanctification. I think sanctification is what you're talking about. That's what we really need after justification. Our sins are forgiven. Can't exclude that. We can't jump from justification to glorification going home. Let's talk. Have have that education. These are very common theological words. We've all heard these our whole life, right? Anybody can give common definitions for what these mean. These are these are Latin-based words. You know, if you were, if Paul were here today and able to speak English, the Apostle Paul, and we said to him, we appreciate so much the clarity of your writings on justification. He would go, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I never used a word like that. It's too. It's a, it's a Latin word. To set right and keep right. Okay, she says it's to set right and to keep right, to justify. Okay, to justify. This is exactly what it means. It means if we were to make it a little more English and less Latin, we might say to rightify. Or to make right. To make it right. To put it right. To put something that's not right, right. So in our, in our word processors, on our computers, there's a command that you can use to justify your margins. When you justify your margins, what do you do to them? You line them up. You make them straight. Okay? And so to be justified means to have what's out of line put in line. What's out of harmony put in harmony. What's out of order put in order. Now the question is in our, in this whole sin problem between, you know, that mankind has gotten itself into, what is it that's out of line, out of harmony, out of order that needs reordering, reharmonizing, regenerating, recreating? Is there something with God's attitude that's now out of line that needs to be fixed? 
Because traditional explanations of justification are that Jesus died to pay our legal debt to the Father for our justification with God. To assuage his wrath, to remove his anger. This is not right. His death was for our rightifying, for our transformation, to take our hearts which are out of harmony with him and put them right with him again. So justification first starts with justifying our concept, putting our minds right about God. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is, what is truth set us free from? First off, it lies, right? Lies and then fear. That's right. Lies about so think about this. If you, if you are believing that God is a vindictive, uh, severe, punishing, uh, arbitrary deity with absolute power who's got his angels keeping track of everything because he wants to make sure he can, he can pound your flesh with every beating that you deserve, if that's your concept of God, will you ever trust him? Will you ever really be his friend? No, you'll constantly live in fear. So the first step is to, is to set our minds right about God. Justifying our minds. When, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one, Jesus said. And so the truth about the, about the Father is revealed in Christ, destroys the lies and wins us back to trust. That's justifying, setting us right with God. Then, after we're set right with God, what happens? When we, when we see him for his, wow, you're not like that. You've only wanted to help me. You've only wanted to heal me. We open the heart, and it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. Love eradicates what? The truth eradicates lies. Love eradicates fear and selfishness. See, so we have this regenerating, sanctifying process that happens, but it starts with setting us right about God first. But the setting us right is not some legal setting right. It's a mind attitude setting us right, that we can trust God, who we really were afraid to trust before. Yes? How does that fit in with um, God's judgment of sin in the end, and the way that he views sin? How, how do you think God views sin in his judgment? Okay, I want you to imagine an HIV-infected man and an HIV-infected woman get together and have a child born HIV-infected. What did the child do wrong? And I want you to imagine you're the grandparent of this child. You're the grandparent. You're not HIV infected. This is your grandchild that's born. Do you hate this child? No. Are you angry and want to punish this child? You see, every one of us in this room, that is analogous to our situation. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. How many of, how many of you chose to be born a sinner? You understand, none of us did. That baby did not have a choice on its condition it was born, born into. Now, even though that baby is not... Is the, should the baby feel guilty for being born HIV infected? Should you and I feel guilty because we're sinners? No. We should not. It's not our fault. Now, that baby, even though it's not his fault, does the baby still have a condition if unremedied will kill it? Yes. You understand, even though it's not our fault we're born in sin, we have a condition if unremedied is terminal. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Now, as the child grows, as the child grows, and let's say, as the grandparent, these, th this child has siblings, and multiple siblings, all born HIV infected. And as these children grow up, you have developed, and we won't go through the mechanisms of how, we'll just say there's a, a remedy that will cure any of the kids who take it freely. You're going to give it to them free. It'll cure them. They have to take it. 
Now, as they grow older, if they refuse the remedy, will that be their fault? Yes. That's your condition and my condition as well. Christ has come to provide a remedy that will heal our hearts and change us. Now, in the end, if you have some grandchildren who've taken the remedy and are getting well and are healing and restoring, and you have some who refuse and they're getting sicker and sicker, they're getting all these opportunistic infections, they're going blind, they're having cough, they're having these carposis sarcomas with lesions on their skin. I mean, they're getting worse and worse and worse. What is it, as you see those grandchildren deteriorating in their HIV condition, what is it you hate? This goes to the judgment question, Chad. This goes to the judgment question. What is it you hate as you see these grandkids failing and dying? Do you hate the grandkids? No. Will they die because you pass judgment on them and then inflict upon them a death penalty? And would you ever do that? Or will you judge correctly? They have refused the remedy I've offered them. And there's nothing more I can do for them. And in the end, I will let them go. You see, God's judgment will be in the end that... All those who are lost are lost because they refuse the remedy, not because, and because they, they have a condition which is incompatible with life. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a great question. Thanks for asking it. So let's go back to this question here, Matthew, though, because I want you to understand this idea of forgiveness of sins that Jesus was talking about versus the two, the two interpretations. If you actually go into the Greek, the word translated forgiveness is ephesus, which, which occurs 17 times, and is translated remission nine times, forgiveness six times, but it means to release one from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon, to deliver, to set one at liberty. If you were HIV infected, and somebody cured you, would you have been freed? Would you have been released? Yeah, if you have... If you have cancer and leukemia and somebody heals you, have you been, have you been delivered? Yes. yes. So this definition, I like the, the King James much better, this remission definition. And what about the word sins translated here? Because when we hear the word sins in the, in the text, we often think about acts or behaviors, don't we? Yes. That would be a misunderstanding as far as I am concerned. The word sins is harmatia and... It is translated as sin, 172 times, sinful once, offense once, and it means to be without a share in, to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken, to miss or wander from the path of uprightness and honor. Or honor. Okay, How might we understand that? It means that child who's born HIV infected, without remedy, will that child begin to have symptoms? Are the symptoms the problem? No. Okay. We are born with a condition of sinfulness. Without remedy, what will our lives begin to reveal? Sins. Now, are the sins the problem, or are they evidence of a problem that we were born into? Now, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say that you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. What is he saying here about this relationship between behaviors and heart? Because behaviors, the acts, are a manifestation of the heart problem. That's why his emphasis was on rebirth, renewal, regeneration, not on you need to go and get all these bad acts paid for. 
You see, one of the great deceptions that the Christian world has fallen into is the idea that the remedy is not for the condition that actually changes and heals us, but the remedy was to uh, uh, deal with the acts of sin so we can have the record books erased, so there's no record of the act. We can have the legal penalty paid for the act, so, so there's no debt for the act. Um, we, and you think about all the things we do based on trying to treat the symptoms rather than treating the heart. But if you read the New Covenant experience in Hebrews chapter 8, what's the New Covenant? I will write my law on your heart and mind. Writing the law on the heart and mind is a transforming, regenerating, recreating process. Talking about that judgment, you know, the things we do right or the things we do wrong, we're not going to be judged on that at all. We'll be rewarded. We'll be judged on the motivating, what motivated us to do good or to do bad. We're not judged on what we do right. We're not judged on what we do wrong. You're rewarded for that. It says, I bring my reward with you, with me, when he comes again. What we're judged on, because God looks on the heart, he looks on the motivation that motivates us to take care of the little lady next door that's going to give us all that she has when she dies. There's a big difference. What do you think about that? Are we judged on what we do or what our motivations were in doing it? They are linked, there's no question. But can you, can you, um, with good motivation, wanting to save someone, um, you see a car wreck, and uh, it's in a ditch, and there's a person who's bleeding, and you have no medical training, there's no one around, you want to help save this person, and so you go with all good intentions, putting yourself in danger because you smell gasoline and think it could blow up at any minute, and pull this person out of it. And in so doing, you sever their spine and cause paraplegia that they wouldn't have had if you had waited for the EMTs to come. Could you, was, was your motive wrong? No. No. No, your motive was wrong. Should you be judged as a bad person for helping this person? No. No. Will you be punished in the hereafter? Will God say, you inflicted quadriplegia on this person and you're going to suffer for it? No. no. So, so they are, there is a linkage. But the motive is really the, int- the intent of the heart, isn't it? Yeah. Because well, we often don't know the future. In fact, we rarely know the future. We can anticipate to a certain degree some future events, but we really can't know the future. Um, so back to then the question of, uh, of this text. Because I want to... Um, uh, one, one more text, uh, one more Greek word, which was the word um, save... It says, for, for God did not send his son into the world, this is John 17, 3, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Notice, Christ didn't come for our condemnation, for our judgment, for our punishment. He came for our salvation. And the word save is, is the Greek word sozo, and it actually means to make whole, to heal, to be made whole. He came to restore us to wholeness, to heal us, to, to put us back into God's original design for humanity. He designed mankind and Adam to be. Okay, Sunday's lesson, uh, first paragraph. Somebody read that for us. Life after September 11, 2001, was greatly changed. People will always remember the images of passenger airplanes flying into the twin towers of the World Trade Center. We all realize that it can happen again. There is no way we can be fully protected from people who are prepared to die as they use an airplane filled with men, women, and children as a flying bomb or are willing to blow themselves up at a bus stop or in a supermarket. There is fear everywhere, 
And considering the world we live in, that fear is understandable. Do you all agree fear is rising? Yes. Um, and what is the relationship between fear and love? Yeah, I want to know. Uh, yeah, there's no question about it. Fear and love are inversely proportional. As fear goes up, love goes down. When love rises, fear goes down. Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, and I'm going to come to some of the brain circuitry here in just a minute. But before we do, what are some of the sources of fear in society today? And why is there so much? The economy. How many actually believe when you hear on the news that people are trying to fix our economy? <laughs> Hopefully your discernment's a little better than that. They're not trying to fix it. They're using it as a weapon against society to incite fear so that people will relinquish freedom and control because what people want when they're afraid is they want security. And security is achieved by more and more governmental control. People will feel safe. Watch what's happening. Just watch. Watch the decisions they're making. The decisions they're making are not going to fix anything. It's going to get worse. And people are going to become more frightened. And as people become more frightened, what are they going to want? More security. And so what are they going to be willing to do? Take away liberty. Take away freedom. We saw this starting in 2001 with the trade towers. Did you notice since in, in the last eight years, have freedoms gotten more or less? Yes. We're on the train. We're, I mean, the signs of the times, guys. Now, as we recognize this, should this incite fear in us? No, for those of us with discernment, children of light, this is not a fearful time. Jesus said, when you see these things happening, this is the beginning of the labor pains. Now, think about a woman in labor. A woman nine months pregnant and the labor pains start. For those ladies who've had children, you can be witnesses to those of us who have not gone through that process. Um, are the pains worse at the very beginning? No. Or do they get worse? get worse? And do the rapidity, in other words, the frequency of those pains, they become more rapid with time. Yes. Expect what's going to happen here in the future. The pains in society are going to get more intense and more rapid. Now, when a woman goes into labor after nine months of pregnancy, does she generally say, oh, man, I wish I could go another nine months? <laughs> or even though she knows it's going to be painful, is there joy and excitement and anticipation? And notice as the pain of labor builds, it builds and builds and builds until deliverance, delivery, and no more pain and much rejoicing. This is what's going to be happening to those of us with insight. Now imagine, though, a woman who's pregnant, but let's say she's a little overweight to the point she doesn't know she's pregnant, and she goes into labor without realizing she's pregnant. What would it be like to go through labor unaware you're pregnant, with all that pain and not knowing what's happening? Would it be terrifying? You understand what's going to happen to those without Christian discernment as the events unfold. They are going to be in terror as these things come upon the world. And we'll, we will have the opportunity. Just imagine a, a young 17-year-old who didn't realize she was pregnant. This has actually happened. There's cases about, out, out there like this. They come into the ER with all this terrible cramping and bleeding and, and don't know what's going on, and they have no idea they're pregnant. And when you tell them they're pregnant... And, and explain to them what's happening. 
well, there's a mixed message that happens instantly. There's first a different type of fear and panic. Oh, no. <laughs> but there's also a great relief. There's a great relief. Because now they understand there's a reason for this pain. And it's leading to something. This is going to happen in the world, too. These people that, that, that have no insight as to what's coming upon the world, as we are witnesses and explain to them, they have had no concept of God necessarily, or really haven't made serious preparation or really acknowledged Him in their life. When you tell them the Lord's about to come and give them the evidences that will bring them to conviction, there's going to be this, oh, no, <laughs> kind of a sensation, followed by a great sense of relief. This is what's coming upon the world. So, as we approach the, the end of the... Uh, so, fear is rising. What happens in the brain when fear rises? Well, does anybody remember from high school biology something called the fight and flight mechanism? Okay. Imagine if you heard a gun shooting right now in the lobby and somebody's heading this way, firing a gun. What emotion would you experience? Fear. Yeah. Now, and let's, let's, let's give some examples here. And, and when, when that fear thing goes up, have you ever been walking in a park and you're stepping forward in the grass and out the corner of your eyes you see something black and slithery down at your feet? Have you ever had something like that happen? What do you do? Run. <laughs> Run. And how, and how far have you gotten before the prefrontal cortex, up here where you do your thinking, this part right behind your forehead, catches up and goes, it was just a rubber hose. <laughs> haven't you had something like this happen I mean you might be you might be 10 feet away before it registers right okay there, I'm teaching you something here the primitive parts of our brain the deep parts of our brain the emotional centers of the brain the hardwired centers these are hardwired reactions that occur without thinking these fear centers are non-thinking centers of the brain non-reasoning centers of the brain and when that happens and it fires what will happen to you physiologically as soon as the fear center fires it activates the alarm systems of the body, raging all types of stress hormones, and shunts the blood away from your viscera, your digestive organs, and your liver, and, and spleen, and all these things, into the muscles. And it also shuts off your immune system so that you can fight or flight. Now, when you're in that state, the immune system gets suppressed during fight or flight. This is why we're more vulnerable to colds when we're under high stress. And the brain, prefrontal cortex, where you do reasoning and planning, is shut down. And we're in that primitive part of the brain, just reacting now. Just reacting, not thinking. This is what happens. Now, you understand we are designed for growth. Does growth take place when you're in full fight-flight mode? No, the blood is shunted away from the internal organs that give us all the energy for digestion and, and nutrition and, and processing of things so that we can grow and mature. When we're under fight and flight, we can't grow. We can't grow physiologically. We can't grow mentally. We can't grow spiritually. Because the prefrontal cortex is shut down when we're living in fear. We can't grow relationally. See how well relationships grow when everybody is afraid of everybody else. We can't grow. This is neurological changes happen in the brain of children who grow in homes in which there is high fear loads because of abuse or because of authoritarian pictures of God being taught in the home. And the fear centers overdeveloped, the prefrontal cortex is underdeveloped, 
They've done studies on animals in which the, the genetically identical animals are um, uh, having pups that are going to be born genetically identical. And they take one group and put them in a very nurturing, loving, secure environment and let these fetuses develop, these pups develop. And in the other group, they put the moms in these very high-stress, threatening environments, you know, like a, like a mouse with, with a cat. Um, like just across a screen on the other side, just threatening constantly to, to eat them, okay? And, and then they look at the development in utero of these fetuses developing under in these moms, genetically identical now. And the fetuses that are developing in the high-stress state have 50% smaller brains of the, of the neocortex, where you do the more, the more than, the, than the pups growing in the other state here. But they're actually bigger, a little bit bigger in the, in the uh, uh, bone structure and muscle structure because they're reading the threat. Now, I'm coming into a threatening world. I've got to be prepared to fight, to, to, to survive. Where the secure one doesn't have that process going on. Well, I tell you this because what is it what Satan wants to do? Does he want us to grow, to mature, to develop? Does he want to stun our growth? Well, one way to do that is to incite fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. Now, there are things taught, and I'm going to tell you, preachers who preach messages of fear stunt spiritual growth. They prevent people from growing to know the Lord because they inflame the fear centers which necessarily turn off the prefrontal cortex where we can no longer reason and think. And we begin reacting on fear. And then we begin creating these legalistic doctrines that provide false security. I'm afraid of God, but that's okay. I've got Jesus who's paid my penalty to the Father. And we hide behind this distortion to be safe. But we don't reason. And then we become afraid to reason and think. Because if anything should challenge our our construct we have now that protects us, you see, it's frightening and scary, so we won't reason and think. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust and incite fear and self-centeredness. Russell. Uh, are you going to touch on humanity's fear of death? Do you want me to? Yes. I think, I think that ever since Abel was killed, that there has been a, an underlying fear of dying in humanity, and that's part of what Christ came to to eliminate. I mean, he came to defeat death, fear of death. And, you know, our lesson was Wednesday talks about, you know, hope beyond the grave. Yes, and so maybe we should jump there to talk about that fear. There were multiple different things done in society that incite fear and damage our brain, and I, I wanted to come back to that, but let's jump to Tuesday's lesson. The last sentence in the first paragraph says, Death is our arch enemy, but it is one that will be defeated. That's what it says, will be defeated. Which death is it talking about, do you think? First death, second death, both. Well, it, 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 look at the language. Death is our arch enemy, but, one, but it is one that will be defeated. Well, the, the, the rest of the paragraph above it is talking about the first death. So that's what the death is. is our so it's talking about the first death. The first death is not yet fully defeated. There's many people still dying. Is that true? Is the first death, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, is it talking about this first death? No. No. So is the first death our real enemy? No. No. What's our real enemy? So why does the second death come? 
When Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, he's saying, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. What death is he talking about? First death. Ah, so first death we're not to be afraid of. Be afraid of the one that destroys body and soul. Matthew 10, 28. Now what's he talking about? And what's the word translated soul? Anybody know? Psyche. Psyche. Your individuality, that, that who you are, the essence of who you are, your personhood, your identity, your mind. Not the body. Not, not the brain tissue. So, Jesus is Jesus saying what destroys the body is not our true enemy? Is that what he's saying? What is it that destroys our soul? Is God the destructor of our soul? You know, there's many teachings that say that. Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body. You know, that's people on earth. Be afraid of the one who can destroy body and soul in hell, and that's my father. He'll get you. No, he doesn't say that in Scripture, but that's how people read it. Yes? Um, when you die your first death, um, you've made the decisions that you're going to make. And so, in a way, it is a fear to die the first death because you... But then you have to come to the, either the relationship with the Lord or you don't have a relationship with the Lord. So that determines your destiny even in, your, in the second death. So once you're dead the first time, that's it. Isn't that true? I mean, I think that's why we fear the first death because we don't have a chance to change after that. Yeah, I don't think we can argue that there's a chance to change after that. I don't think we can. But how do I put this? Let me spin it on its head. If you, if you know God, do you have to fear death? No. So, those of us who know him, should we fear death? No. This first death. What is eternal life, according to Jesus? No. Do you notice Jesus didn't say eternal life is living billions and billions and eons of time? He didn't just define it. If, if most people you go on the street, what is eternal life? Define that for me. And they're going to usually define it as never-ending life, existing for all eternity, through time. But Jesus didn't define it that way. He defined it as knowing God. I think it goes back to the whole thing. If you're fearing death, you don't have security in that eternal hope. And I think that most of the world doesn't have hope. At least eternal hope. How do you consider the Thessalonians text that says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe. Now listen carefully. Especially the Adventist in the room. <laughs> Listen carefully. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We're familiar with this part of it. What are your thoughts about this idea that when Jesus comes, he's bringing with him those who have fallen asleep in him? It's our identity. Our character. Christy? Say it's bringing their um, characters or their individuality stored, so to speak, on the... Yes, I think that's a great metaphor. Think about a laptop computer. I have one. I have electronic medical records. My laptop computer hooks via a wireless internet connection to a server that is miles and miles away. And everything I do on that, on that my laptop is immediately backed up on the server miles and miles away. 
Now, if you were to take my laptop with its hard drive and processor and all those things, its, it's memory and all that stuff, and, and you were to throw it in a fire and melt it, could you say you've just, in a certain way, killed my laptop? Now, if I go out and buy a new piece of hardware, connect it to my server and download all the data onto it, have I just resurrected my laptop? <laughs> you see, this is the hard drive, and I'm pointing to our brain, I'm pointing to our head. Our hard drive is between the ears, our processor, our computer, right here. It's the laptop. Everything you're doing in life right now, the decisions you're making, who you're becoming, the choices, the actions, the beliefs that you're forming, are being backed up on a heavenly server. In the Bible times, they didn't understand that, and so they used words like the Lamb's Book of Life, the heavenly record book. You see, it's communicating a recording device in heaven. When we die on this earth, the first death, it's not to be feared. Don't fear that. You're safe and secure with my Father in heaven. Your individuality is safe. No one can touch you there. We're waiting, residing individually on the, hard, on the heavenly server. And when Christ comes, he brings his heavenly server, makes new bodies that are perfect without defect, downloads all those into those bodies, and poof, we're alive again. We're resurrected. But for the wicked, the one who destroys body and soul, they're downloaded into imperfect bodies at this resurrection at the end of a thousand years, it says in Revelation chapter 20, the resurrection of damnation that Jesus spoke about. And once they're downloaded into those bodies, guess what happens to the heavenly server? It's erased. No more data on the heavenly server. And then when they die, they're gone. That's the death we're to fear, that eternal non-existence death. Now, did Jesus destroy that death? Yes. And there's a lot of, lot of, lot of debate about this, but I'm going to read you from Scripture, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is not just the sleep death. It's light and immortality that is brought to light because that other death has been destroyed. Which is a little bit different than he died that other death. See, the other death that a lot of people want to say, he died the second death, you know there, there are people that are rabidly clinging to this idea, hostily at this idea because they insist that Jesus died the second death rather than destroyed the second death. And why is it they insist on that? Because they have a model that says their payment has to be made. And if he didn't die the second death, then our payment isn't made and we can't be saved because it's all a legal process. But if he died the second death, and the second death is what Jesus talked about in 1028 of Matthew, that the body and soul are destroyed, and the soul is your psyche, your individuality, did Jesus at the cross have his individuality and identity destroyed? Or did he raise this same Jesus was raised? His individuality and identity was not destroyed. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life. How did he do it? What is the basis of death? Where does death originate? It says in Hebrews 2.14 that he took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. What's the devil's power? Remember, life eternal is knowing God. So the devil's power are the lies that he tells that we believe that keep us from knowing God. We don't know him. We don't have life. Christ destroyed that. 
And then once we believe the lies, the, the principles of Satan's kingdom are the opposite of love. God's kingdom is the kingdom of love, which is the law of life for the universe. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of selfishness, which only brings death. If anyone's not, I'll give you another example from science. Viruses. Viruses are not part of God's creation. They're part of Satan's infection of God's creation. How do we know? The function of a virus is to do one thing. It will infect the host cell, take over the machinery of the cell, and redirect the machinery of the cell to do one thing. Me, 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 more of me. It just produces more and more virus until the cell bursts, and all those viruses go out and infect more cells, and all those cells do the same thing, go out and infect more cells, until the, if something doesn't intercede or intervene to stop it, the hosts will die, and the virus will die if something doesn't stop it. This is sin. Sin only warps and perverts God's creation, and if it's not stopped, will destroy all life, thus destroying itself. Christ came and stood in the way and destroyed the virus. That's why he rose again on, on the first day, because in him there was no virus. The law of life was perfectly reproduced and restored in Christ Jesus for his perfect life and self-sacrificing death. The grave couldn't hold him. In me, I have life, original and barred. He said, no one can take my life. I'll lay it down. I will raise it up again. Over here. Continuing the discussion about death yes. and our fear of death, I think there's something different and maybe it causes some guilt on the heart of some Christians. There's something different between the fear of death and the fear of the second death or the eventuality. I may, as a Christian, be confident that upon the second coming, whenever that happens, alive or dead, that I will be taken home with my Savior. But if a tiger pounces out from around the corner, I think there's a normal physiologic response to that, of fear. Yes. And that's part... We should not be uh, guilty or feel guilty because we have this normal physiologic response to the startle response. Let's, let's talk about that even further. We shouldn't feel guilty, but we should recognize that as evidence of our brokenness. Because I will guarantee you that if a tiger jumped out in front of Jesus, he wouldn't have been afraid. And the tiger wouldn't have attacked him either. Most people, by the way, are not afraid of the tiger. They're afraid of the pain and suffering they will we'll experience at the hands of the tiger. <laughs> Most people, actually, when they see a tiger, would love to be able to go up and pet and wrestle and cuddle. And they see those tiger trainers, and they see those tiger trainers petting those guys. And they go, well, I just wish I could do that. But we're not, we're afraid. We're looking forward to the day in the new heaven and the earth. We can do that with the lions and tigers. They're not actually afraid of the tiger. They're afraid, and most people actually really aren't even afraid of death. I have so many patients. They're not afraid of dying. They're afraid of suffering. They're afraid of pain. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Tim, it's not only that they don't fear death, it's they don't want to leave their loved ones behind. Yes. And that's a form of a certain type of pain, too, a psychological pain. They're grieving and feeling the, the grief pain of, of missing their children and their grandchildren and, and those types of things as well. Isn't that part of it as well? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... so how do we deal with that type of fear? Well, in, in the sermon today, Paul talked about the time of Nero and about how the Christians were, were fed to the lions and, and all this type of stuff. Anybody know the stories of how they behaved? 
when they were going to the arena knowing that they were going to be torn to shreds? How did anybody know the history of how the Christians handled that? Did they go out there with abject terror? No. 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 They were singing hymns, and it was mind-boggling to the Romans. And this is what, one of the reasons why Christianity spread so powerfully, is because the Romans had this terrible fear of death. But they saw the Christians, while they were being torn and beaten and, and crucified and all these things, that they had some peace about them, and they weren't afraid. And they would walk out to the, to the thing, not fighting and screaming like so many others, but dignified. How could they do this? Or we have an example in Scripture, when, when uh, Stephen was being stoned, what was Stephen's demeanor? Don't lay this against them, Father. And he had a peace about him in his face that says, radiated like an angel. Is that because he knew his death was for a different purpose? Whereas your death, as you're creating down the mountain in an uncontrolled vehicle, maybe does not have the same purpose. Well, see, that's only if we take the narrow view and believe that we understand what the future holds. But if we trust what the scriptures say, all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Notice it doesn't say all things are good. All things are not good. But he takes the things in this world that are not good and brings good out of it. I had a young man who was in his 30s dying of esophageal cancer. And um, he had two children in elementary school, happily married. And he struggled at first with, why did the Lord let this happen to me? I'm a Christian, you know, I pay my tithe, do all this stuff, how could this happen, blah, 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 blah. And he, he was, but he didn't want to let the discouragement get him, so he came to see me. And he came to a point where he trusted the Lord. He said, Lord, I can't figure all this out, but it, you know, bring some good out of this. And before he died, he saw a brother and a sister that had walked away from the Lord come back to the Lord because of what they saw him go through, that he maintained joy, he maintained cheer, he was actually working to help some of the nurses do some projects they were doing that he was working with, and his witness brought his brother and sister back to the Lord. Before he died, he said, if the Lord needed me to walk this path in order to reach my brother and sister for eternity, I'm glad to do it. Okay? Now, I don't know, I don't believe the Lord brought the cancer upon him at all. I don't think the Lord struck that guy with cancer. Not for one second. But when he got cancer, because he trusted the Lord, the Lord was able to use that negativity to bring something positive out of it. And I think with the careening down the mountain, you know, none of us, I think we have that reflex, Lord, I don't want to die right now. i got, I got work to do. <laughs> work for you, of course, Lord. <laughs> you know? But if we trust the Lord with that, can we say that, Lord, you know, if it's going to be better for your cause, that somehow my death in this point helps spread the gospel and brings the end about sooner, are we willing to put our life in his hands that much? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, describing those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. There's some transforming process as we walk with Jesus that we lose fear. Remember, perfect love casts out fear. As we experience more of his love, our need for survival of self and promoting of self and protecting self goes away. And it is consumed in a desire for love for God and for others that we're willing to give ourselves, as Moses was at Sinai, take my name out of the book, or Paul, gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. Or many parents who would eagerly give their life if they had to to protect their kids. You experience that in some human relationships now. God wants to bring us to the point that we are freed from this in all of our relationships. 
That is the healing process. And that is why I said earlier, and I want to close again with this, preachers and doctrines and teachings that incite fear oppose the Lord's work. They impair prefrontal cortex function. They impair the development of, and, and actually, uh, I didn't finish the, the, the biological studies, but they've done studies, brain imaging studies in human beings, that as you worship God, a, a fear-based God, it inflames the fear-based primitive centers of the brain and actually impairs development of the prefrontal cortex. And as we, develop, as we worship a loving God, a benevolent God as revealed in Jesus, the prefrontal cortex develops and the prefrontal cortex exercises governance over those fear-based centers of the brain. There's actually brain changes that come. Work to reject the idea of this abusive, fear-based God. And I'm going to tell you, um, I'm going to make a hypothesis. I've said in here before that our church has experienced very little growth in spiritual wisdom and insight for the last hundred years. Have you all, and I think that's a pretty good historical fact. What new spiritual insights has this church come up with in the last hundred years? Nobody, I've asked pastors and theologians. They, They can't tell me. I've come to Southern and asked them. No major discovery in the last hundred years. What is the major emphasis of our evangelism for the last hundred years? Fear. The beast of revelation and fear. We preach a fear message. Get ready or else you're going to get punished. It impairs spiritual growth. It's time, as it says in Christ Object Lessons, page 214, the final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's coming is, quote, the truth about God's character of love. It's a growth message. It's a message that expands the heart, the mind, the relationships. It's a healing message. This is the message we need to be taking to the world. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love as revealed in Jesus. May we get past our prejudices and our biases and the misconceptions and the long-held distortions we've had about you. May your Holy Spirit enlighten us to see the truth of your wonderful character of love, that we can know you personally and then effectively communicate your love to others so that as these things break upon the world and fear is threatening to rise at all corners, that we may be conduits of love to combat the fear on this planet. We pray in your holy name. Amen.